today's reading comes from 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 24, and it can be found on page 968 in the Pew Bibles. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he was going to you of his own accord. With him we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he has been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that is being ministered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. Did I throw you off by walking up in front? Yeah, no, sorry. sorry about that. I left my Bible and my sermon notes awkwardly on the base amp, and so, you know, I had to go get them. Good morning, all. How you all doing? It's good to see you this morning. Uh, welcome uh, to those of you who are guests this morning. Maybe now uh, we have some folks that have been here for the baptisms. Uh, we had some in the first service as well. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning, and you found yourself here this morning. We're glad to have you here as well, but we have been working our way through a sermon series on 2 Corinthians called Yet Always Rejoicing. And uh, the past few Sundays, uh, we've been in chapter 8, and chapters 8 and chapter 9 are focused on giving. And Paul's focus on giving it begins in chapter 8, runs all the way through chapter 9. And uh, sometimes people say that pastors talk too much about money. But Paul's going to talk about money for two chapters, so I'm going to talk about money for two chapters, and that's just how it's going to go when you're working your way through a book of the Bible. But we're only going to talk about money very indirectly this morning, because this morning's text is still going to be focused on Paul's relief effort, which we started uh, the past couple Sundays, but we're going to look at it from the side, as it were. So rather than drawing out application about giving, I want to focus our attention on Paul's explanation for why he has sent traveling companions along with Titus. Because the explanation that he's going to give here in 2 Corinthians 8 about why he has sent traveling companions with Titus is going to run at odds with the point that he makes or the explanation that he gives in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 about his apostleship. And so the point that I want to make in putting these two passages together, in, I'm going to give it to you here ahead of time, it's in the title of the sermon, is that there are many, even opposite means to achieve the same singular aim. So 
I'm going to make that point from our text, 2 Corinthians here and 1 Corinthians, and then I'm going to offer four principles of application. Now, I'm sure that that was enormously vague and very unhelpful, and none of you still quite know where this sermon series is going, and that's just fine. We're going to just hang in there with me. We're going to trust the Lord and see if he can't make something beautiful uh, out of this moment, all right? Amen. I heard it said. All right. So as we get started, just keep in mind, right, keep in mind, and if you're new, this will be helpful to you, but Paul is writing from the church in Macedonia to the church in Corinth, the the province of Macedonia, to the church in Corinth, and one of his chief purposes in writing 2 Corinthians and the points of chapters 8 and 9 is to prepare the Corinthians for the relief effort that Paul is overseeing for the poor saints back in Jerusalem. So if you can think of like a, like a hurricane relief effort, this is a famine relief effort. There has been a world, there's been a global or an empire-wide famine, and so some parts of the empire in Paul's day are being hit worse than other parts, and uh, the uh, Jerusalem and the areas in Judea are being hit especially bad. And so Paul, in his missionary travels, is uh, taking up collections from all the churches that he's going to so that he can send it back to the poor there in Jerusalem. All right, so that's kind of the context of what we're looking at all throughout here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So now into our text, which has already been read for us. In our passage this morning, Paul is introducing Titus's two traveling companions. All right, so Titus is the bearer of the letter. Titus is the one that is, uh, Paul wrote the letters in, in, in uh, the Macedonian churches, and he's sent it now with Titus over to Corinth. And Paul is introducing Titus's two traveling companions. Paul doesn't mention them by name. He just refers to them as the brothers. So the first brother is mentioned in verse 18, and Paul says that this first brother is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So presumably, he is known, at least by reputation, to the Corinthians. And this famous brother had been appointed by the churches, presumably the churches back in the east in Macedonia or maybe even further back, to travel with Paul as he carried out this relief effort. The second brother is mentioned in verse 22, and he too seems to be known to the Corinthians since Paul mentions him as having great confidence in the Corinthians. So he seems to know the Corinthians well enough to have great confidence in them, which implies that they have a pre-existing relationship. And then in verse 20, Paul explains why he has sent these two brothers along with Titus. He writes, we take this course of action, meaning sending these two brothers along with Titus, we take this course of action so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. Now, what does Paul mean when he says not wanting, that he doesn't want to be blamed? Well, keep in mind that Paul is raising a considerable amount of money. So he's been doing that in Macedonia, going from church to church and collecting a lot of money. And now he's heading over to Achaia, the province of Achaia, where the Corinthians are, to raise some more. And we don't know how much money Paul has raised, but this is more than just a few bucks, He's got a considerable amount of money if he's going to make a dent in this relief uh, and the, the famine uh, situation back in Jerusalem. So he's been raising a lot, amount of, a lot of money, and he doesn't want anyone to think 
that he's a charlatan of some sort, that he's out on some relief effort for the poor when really the only thing getting relief is Paul's pocketbooks. Right? So he wants to make sure that he's totally above board so that nothing jeopardizes the relief effort. And that's why he's sent these two brothers along with Titus. Everyone knew that Titus was Paul's man, and Titus had been in Corinth before, and they knew Titus, and they knew that Titus and Paul were intimate colleagues. So for all of my Star Wars fans, you can think of Titus like Paul's Padawan learner, right? And so these two brothers that are coming along with Titus, they're like from the Jedi Council, right? They're more disinterested observers, you know, as it were, right? They're, they're known to the Corinthians, but they're not as connected to Paul. So these two brothers can vouch for the integrity of Paul's relief effort. Okay, now that brings us to verse 21, which is where I want to focus our attention, because in verse 21, Paul says that he's aiming at, or as one translation translates it, he's taking pains, he's aiming at uh, doing what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of man. And of course, that makes good sense given this situation because in order for Paul to administer this relief effort effectively, which he says in verse 19 is for the glory of the Lord, he needs everyone to trust his honorable and that his intentions are indeed honorable because how is he going to raise money for the poor if people think that he's not honorable and trustworthy? So his, their opinion of him matters significantly for the sake of this relief effort. So Paul's posture here is not, I don't care what people think about me. As long as Jesus thinks well of me, that's all that matters. His posture for the sake of the Lord, his posture is for the sake of the Lord and for the sake of the Lord's mission, it's vital that people think well of me. Or we could sum it up like this. The opinion of others matters. All right, now... I want to take what Paul says here, and I want to put it in conversation, what he says in 1 Corinthians 4. So turn in your Bible. You've got to flip back just a little bit, which is not a challenge for you because you brought your Bible to church with you this morning, which is fantastic. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you don't have your Bible, that's fine. Uh, if you're a guest, in the pew rack in front of you is a Bible. 953 is uh, where we're heading. But 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is defending his apostolic ministry. He is defending and affirming his apostleship, something that he often has to do with the Corinthians, it appears. And so as Paul is defending his apostolic ministry, he says in chapter 4, verse 1, this is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. All right, so he wants them to think of him in this way. And then, same as 2 Corinthians 8, he notes the importance of conducting his ministry with integrity. It's required, he says, that a steward should be found faithful. But then look at verse 3. Because even though it's necessary that as a steward, he has to be found faithful and he needs to do his apostleship with integrity, he says this. It is a very small thing if I am judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. And Paul is essentially saying, my apostolic ministry, 
The authority of my apostolic ministry doesn't come from people. It comes from Christ. So it doesn't really matter what you think of me. It doesn't even matter what I think of me. The only judgment that counts is the judgment of Christ. Now you can flip back then here to 2 Corinthians 8. So we put these two passages together, and here's what we've got. In 2 Corinthians 8, Paul is saying, it's not enough what the Lord thinks of me. I take great care to make sure that people think well of me too. But in 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is saying, I don't care what people think of me. The only judgment that counts is the Lord's judgment. So now on the surface, there's some tension here. In each instance, he's basically taking the opposite approach with respect to the opinions of others. And we can see this same sort of tension all throughout the Bible on all sorts of issues. So let me just mention a few other places. You don't need to try to follow me or turn to these places. But in Matthew chapter 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells his followers, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But then... Just one chapter later, still in the same Sermon on the Mount, he tells his followers, beware of practicing your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. When you give to the needy, do it in secret so that not even your left hand knows what your right hand is doing. Or Paul's admonition to the church in Galatia, in Galatians chapter 6, he tells the Galatians, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But then just three verses later, he says, for everybody has to carry their own load. Or in Luke 22, Jesus tells his disciples that if they don't have a sword, they should sell their cloaks and they should buy one. But then, on the night he is arrested, he tells Peter to put his sword away. So which is it? Care what people think or don't care what people think? Do your good deeds in public or do your good deeds in private? Bear each other's burdens or every man for himself? Bring a sword or put a sword away. All right, I think the resolution to this tension can be found in verse 19 of our passage here in 2 Corinthians 8. So look back there in that text, because what Paul says is that it's his regard, it's his regard for the Lord's glory that determines how much he cares about what others think of him. So in the context of the relief effort, Paul knew that it would be honoring to the Lord. It would be benefit to the Lord's glory if the relief effort succeeded. And so Paul bent over backwards to make sure that people thought well of him, not for his own sake, but for the sake of the Lord's glory. But in 1 Corinthians 4, in the context of his apostleship, Paul knew that it would not glorify the Lord would not glorify the Lord if he left the validation of his apostleship to the judgment of others. And so for the sake of the Lord's glory, he disregarded the opinion of others. And the point to be made in all of this is not that there's no right answer or that truth is relative. The point here is that there are multiple ways, even at times opposite ways, of getting to the same singular end of glorifying the Lord. So even though the aim of our lives, glorifying the Lord, is fixed and it never changes, the actions that we take to get to that end are context-specific and they do change. 
So I think I've used an illustration, uh, this illustration before with regard to my lily plant, but I'll use it again here because it fits very well. But I bought a lily plant for my study and the, the tips of the plant began to turn brown. So I got online and Googled it up. What do you do if the tips of your plant are turning brown? And the answer was sometimes the tips of your lily plant turn brown because you're giving it too much water and sometimes it turns brown because you're not giving it enough water. So I thought, that's not helpful for me because I don't know how much water I'm supposed to be giving the plant, right? right? So sometimes when your plant's turning brown, you need to increase watering. And when it's turning brown, sometimes you need to decrease watering. The exact opposite actions. But both are pointing towards or aiming towards the same goal of having a healthy lily plant. So it's the same way with the Christian life. Our singular aim as Christians is to glorify Christ, but the actions that we take to achieve that aim often have to vary depending upon the needs and circumstances of each situation. All right. Now, I don't know what all situations you're facing in your life, so I'm going to give four principles about how to apply this in your life, four principles of application. So here's the first one. The Christian life calls for wisdom, not simply rote obedience. Some of us, not all of us, but some of us, we just would prefer to be told what to do. We don't want to have to think or figure it out. We don't want to have to determine for ourselves what the right course of action is. We want the Christian life to be like a NASCAR race. You go down a long straightaway, and when you come to the corner, you turn left. And then you go down another long straightaway, and when you come to the corner, you turn left. And you just keep going down straightaways and turning left for 500 miles, and then the race is over. But the Christian life isn't like a NASCAR race. Sometimes you have to turn left. Sometimes you have to turn right. Sometimes you have to care what people think about you. And sometimes you shouldn't care at all. And sometimes you have to carry your brother's load. And sometimes you need to let him carry it for himself. And oh, how much simpler it would all be if it was the same thing every single time. But it's not, right? It's not. And that's why we need wisdom, not just rote obedience. So here's an example. Maybe this relates to your situation, but it's a good example for all of us. Perhaps you're a parent, and your kid is being rebellious and disrespectful. Does he need your gentleness and your affirmation? Or does he need your rebuke and to hold a hard line? And if you think there's only one right answer ever to that question, then you and your kid are probably in for a world of hurt. If I think that every time the tips of my lily plant turn brown, the only thing that I should ever do is just keep adding more water, or the only thing that I should ever do is withhold water, I'll likely wilt my plant. In the same way, if your only response to adolescent rebellion is tighten the screws, or if your only response is ever only give them some slack, you'll likely wilt your kid. Because the right answer is it depends on what's needed. And that requires wisdom, not simply just rote obedience. My second principle is related to this, and it's kind of an extension from it, and it fits very well with the fact that we did baptisms this morning. 
We had the great privilege of seeing these baptisms this morning in both services. And the beautiful thing about baptism, as Pastor Johnny clarified, is that it, it proclaims or it, it embodies the gospel. So in a previous sermon back in 2020, right around the elections, I talked about the twin baptismal virtues of the Christian faith. And I made the point then, and I reiterate it now, is that baptism consists of both dying with Christ and rising with Christ. Some virtues of the Christian life correspond to our dying with Christ. So sacrifice, obedience, repentance, truth-telling, individual responsibility, tough love. And some virtues of the Christian life correspond with our rising with Christ. Fairness, equality, kindness, community responsibility, and tender love. And Christian maturity will require us to draw from both sets of virtues at various points in our Christian life. And if the only set of virtues that I know how to draw from are the dying with Christ virtues, then I run the risk of becoming a Pharisee. But if the only sets of virtues that I know how to, to draw from are the rising with Christ virtues, then I run the risk of becoming a libertine. The path of wisdom is learning when and how to use the whole range of the Christian virtues to let the fullness of our baptismal identity shape how we navigate life. It's my general experience or observation that we come into the world more drawn to one side or the other. There's nothing wrong with that because we all have to have a starting place. But we need to learn to move past our starting places and learn how to embody both sets of virtues. And the key is not simply dumping one set of virtues and taking on the other set of virtues, but learning how to hold them both together and to know which is needed for which situation. All right, third principle, the Christian life calls us to be generous toward others. So politics, school choices, size of our homes, where we go on vacations, how much we give to relief efforts, there are so many issues in life where there is not a single required action for all Christians. Different unique contexts will necessitate different unique, even at times opposite, responses. So in some instances, we should make our good deeds public, and in some instances, we should keep them private. Different contexts, different actions. And we have to be very careful that we don't insist that, is what, that what is legitimately needed in my situation is therefore legitimately needed in your situation. There are certain things we should pass judgment on. So if you tell me that you're leaving your wife and kids for another woman or for another man, or if you tell me that you are stealing from your employer, the scriptures are clear. Certain issues are morally objective and they're non-negotiable. But so much of life is particular to our particular contexts. And as we all navigate the particularities of our various particular contexts, love calls us to assume the best of our fellow Christians who have made a different choice. I'm not pausing for dramatic effect. I'm pausing because I lost my place in my notes here. <laughs> 
Ah, and my point here, okay, this is my point, is not when you make a different choice. Okay, so when, I, when you make a different choice than me, this is not my point. I'm not saying that I should be willing to give you grace even though I know you are making a poor decision. Like how, as Christians, we give grace to non-Christians when they're making the wrong decision about Christ. That's not, what I'm, that's not the point I'm making here. Rather, the point I'm making is that I should be open to the possibility that the Lord is leading you in a different direction than he is leading me on the same issue. That the Lord knows the unique particularities of each of our respective contexts, and he knows the paths that we each need to take in order to arrive at the same singular aim of glorifying him. So yes, let's all continue to pursue that same singular aim. But let's all grant each other the freedom to pursue that aim by taking different paths, however the Lord leads. Now, sometimes you might be taking a different path for really bad reasons, and I'm not saying that everybody's paths are just kind of all virtually the same and equal, right? All right, so we can think about these, but, it, but reflexively, what's my re- you're a mature follower of Christ, I'm a mature follower of Christ, you make a different decision about a thing than I make, is my first response thinking, you're wrong, you're not listening to the Lord, you're being disobedient, right? Or is it possible that given the uniqueness of your context, the Lord is asking you to do something different in that situation than he's asking me to do in that situation because of my context? So let's all grant each other a posture of generosity and love. And that leads to my last and most important point of application. The Christian life calls for us to be in deep, intimate relationship with Jesus. Life is complex, the Christian life no less so. And knowing when to buy a sword and when to put your sword away requires more than just wisdom, requires more than just a knowledge of both sets of baptismal virtues, more than just a generous posture towards others. It requires us to dwell in intimate relationship with Jesus, to know him, to be able to hear his voice and discern his spirit's prompting so that we will know what it means for us in this situation or that situation, how to honor him. To be in deep, intimate relationship with Jesus so that we are able to discern his direction for our lives, his promptings about which way to go when we face the fork in the road. The Christian life is not just a set of rules. It's not just a fixed map of directions with only one route for all of us. But the good news is that Jesus is a good shepherd, and he knows that when you and I both come to the same fork in the road, he knows which way we both need to take. And he might know that I need to go left and you need to go right. That you need to do your good deeds in public and I need to do my good deeds in private. That you need to buy a sword and that I need to put my sword away. And because he knows what I need better than I know what I need, and he knows what you need better than you know what you need, we both need him to direct us. It's not enough that he's given us the Bible. It's not enough that he has given us the Ten Commandments and objective Christian morality. He has given us something better. He has given us himself, his spirit, because the Christian life is about following Jesus the person, not Jesus the principle. 
And that's why Christianity is a relationship. It's not merely a religion. A religion gives you a prescribed list of regulations and rules that apply to everyone equally, like the Ten Commandments. And Christianity does that too. Right? So Christianity is not, not a religion. It is a religion. We have rules and regulations that apply to everyone equally. But Christianity is more than just a religion. Christianity also gives us Christ. Because we're not the same, and all of our unique circumstances are not the same, and we don't all have the same needs, but Jesus is the sure guide who knows our needs and who leads all of his sheep home. We normally, I would close the sermon in prayer, and then we would sing, but I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. We're going to close in prayer singing uh, this song. Normally, while I'm praying, the worship team sneaks up, and when you open your eyes, you're like, how did they get up there? Is it magic? It's not magic. They just come up while your eyes are closed. Now you can see this is how the chili gets made right here. But I want to close with this song as our prayer because maybe this morning you're at a fork in the road and you don't know which way to go. So if that's you, and it's not one of the moral absolutes, right, but you do feel like it matters, that there even feels like there's a right or a wrong. It's going to affect how you interact with people. Do they feel loved? Do they feel unloved? If you don't know which way to go, then let this closing song be your prayer. Open your heart to Jesus' leading. Invite him to guide you and to direct you. Even this week as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm like, do I put that in? Do I take that out? What's the right thing to say? What's the wrong thing to say? And I have to open my heart up to the Lord and say, Lord, just, I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll, I'll, you just tell me what to do and I'll do it. I just need your guidance and I need your direction on this. If that's you, just do the same. Right? Use this song as you're offering yourself up to Jesus to let him guide you and direct you, going right, going left. Yield yourself wholly to him. And then when the time comes and you have to make the decision, maybe you can't put it off anymore, then just make the best decision that you can and trust him, that if you've yielded yourself to him, that he is guiding you and leading you. He loves you. He'll be with you. He cares more about the thing that you're asking about that you do even. So open yourself up to him. Let's stand up and sing together.